And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on the first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and his deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who 
was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years old had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and he drew near to look. There came a sound, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 We're excited. Today, if, if you're brand new here, we love the Bible. In fact, we're looking at Acts right now. Chapter, we're in chapter 7, and that was probably the longest verse I've ever had anybody read. 36 verses. And if you know me, you're terrified right now because you're thinking, oh my word, we're going to be here for four hours. I promise you we won't. I, won't. I won't keep you that long. But before I get started, I heard one of my favorite preachers preach this message, and he shared this story. I thought, this is so good, i got to share it. So there was a little boy uh, one Sunday who was in the foyer of his church, and he noticed a board on the wall, and this board had stars and names under the stars. And so he asked his mom and dad, what, what is this for? And mom and dad, you know, he didn't really understand what this was because his parents said, well, these are the people who have died in the service. And the little fella didn't really get it or he didn't understand what that means. So he asked, well, was that the 9 a.m. service or the 11 a.m. service? They said, no, 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 not that kind of service. We're talking about the military service. It refers to our troops, those who have given their lives so that we can have freedom. Now, our hope here at New Heights Church, our hope and our aim on Sunday morning is that you come and you get life. You receive life. We, want, we don't want to take life from you. We want you to walk through these doors. We want you to experience life-giving encounter with the one and only living God. That after being in the presence of the Holy Spirit, after unpacking the word of God, you would leave here encouraged and challenged. Okay? Paul said to a young pastor, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So that's what we do here at New Heights Church. Because faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So if you want to hear from God, then you need to open up the Word of God. That's why we're committed to doctrine. And so every Sunday, we go through God's Word verse by verse. Now, last week we read that Stephen was seized. He was full of grace and power, and he stirs the pot, he rocks the boat, He's a holy troublemaker, and today we're going we're gonna to take a, 
a step on the accelerator and we're gonna blow all the way through 36 verses. Now, I, I've gone back and forth. How, how do I preach this? How do I preach this chapter? Because uh, it's, it, it's a unit of thought and maybe I wanna deal with the entire narrative so that we don't take it out of context and, and you know, we'll just kind of soar over it but not spend a whole lot of time analyzing every verse of this chapter. But there's so much truth here that I, what I've decided to do is break it into two. So I, I haven't found any verse-by-verse preacher that has done this yet. So most verse-by-verse preachers will take this text and they'll preach it uh, in one sermon and they'll kind of soar over it like from 5,000 5, feet or whatever. You're just kind of... And, and the reason for that is because Stephen is very theological. He, he, he gives this narrative of the history of Israel and here's why I'm gonna take, I'm gonna go over it in two weeks and I'm not gonna... And, and this is the first time probably in three years of being here that I'll kind of soar over a text. So instead of analyzing every single verse, I'm going to kind of just go over it with you in general and pick up some of the main points of what he's making. And here's why. Because throughout the book of Acts, he's going to keep referring to this sermon. Not Stephen, obviously, but Luke will say things and we'll be able to go back and we'll be able to pick up on some of the theology and, and, and what that means. Now, in your notes, I did something special for you this week. So there are links in your notes that were sent out to you that you can go for a deeper understanding of what Stephen's doing here. Because he's talking about, he's defending himself again. Remember, they're accusing him of uh, blaspheming the, the, the temple and the traditions of Moses. And so you can click on those links and you're going to get to see the relationship between Jesus and the law and the relationship between Jesus and the temple. And I promise you throughout our series on the book of Acts, we will hit on those things. But today what I wanna do is I wanna hit the big idea of what Stephen was doing. So that's, that's what we'll do. Now, here's the truth. I have no idea if this was Stephen's first sermon. But we do know that it was his last sermon. So he was just officially entered into this leadership position in the church. He's now about to preach his last sermon. His life wasn't long, but wow. Wow, what a life. His final words, a gospel invitation. And some people say he got to preach his, his own funeral. Acts chapter 7, like I said, is a long chapter, 60 verses in this chapter. And these 60 verses are all about Stephen's sermon in the synagogue of the freedmen a Hellenistic, Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem, which is where Stephen is preaching this sermon. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's the longest chapter in the book of Acts. And like I said, he preaches the longest sermon recorded in the Bible. And oftentimes, when we get a sermon in the Bible, it's kind of like a snippet or a summary. But this seems to be this exhaustive transcript of what he had to say. And I think this has been pretty, I think it's important because if we didn't have this chapter in Acts, most of us would never know Stephen as a preacher. We would think of him as the deacon. He's the guy back in chapter six who was one of the seven who was selected by the early church to serve tables. The widows who would come to get food and daily distribution, that was his task, that was his job, that's Stephen. He was probably a young man who loved to serve the Lord. He was filled with wisdom. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a Gentile, uh, he had Gentile origins that through Jewish, Jewish in his faith, and he came here and he delivers this extremely powerful message. Remember, last week we ended with Stephen on trial. The high priest is going to start chapter 7 by asking him, are these things so? Or some of your translations, so, so what do you say? We're accusing you of violating the temple. We're accusing you of undermining Moses. 
and we're accusing you of ignoring the law. And Stephen gives his answer. The first answer that Stephen gives is, hey, I'm not by myself. I'm not by myself. I'm not alone here, and that's powerful. That's, that's actually going to be kind of the big idea in his sermon. So folks, hear me today. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you feel like you're alone and you're standing on your own, you're not. God, God calls, is still calling a people. In fact, I want to look at that because in the first eight verses, verses one through eight, we kind of see this. He starts out saying brothers and fathers. So the first thing I want you to see is Stephen is respectful. Stephen's respectful. He then goes into his sermon, and I want you to realize he's doing some really good exegesis here. So Stephen, way to go. Way to be example. A lot of the sermons that we have in the Bible are great uh, examples of expository preaching. I've said it before. The reason your pastor preaches expository sermons is not because it's my preference. In fact, if I got to choose, I would probably much rather do topical because it would take less time. When I have to prepare an expository sermon, it's like writing a paper every week. It's, you, you put your, you're just in the text all week long, and it feels like I'm writing a research paper. You can ask my admin. There are times that I have to get up from my office and just walk around the chapel just to clear my head and just kind of breathe, because this is, this is deep. I'd much rather do a topical message. But this is a conviction and not a preference. A lot of the examples that we have in the Bible, most, I, I would say even every example we have in the Bible, they're expository preachers. But you, here's what you need to remember. Stephen's sermon was a response to a question. He didn't get to stand behind a podium after some inspirational music, looking out onto an eager audience ready to receive the word. No, instead, he had to respond to an angry Sanhedrin asking him whether it was true that he had been debasing the law in the temple. And, and I want to just ask this question. How would you respond if you were Stephen? How would you respond if you were in this situation? I love Stephen's response. The guy knows his purpose. The guy knows his mission. He doesn't run. He answers their question in a very careful, subtle retelling of Israel's history, which climaxes with the work of Jesus Christ. And everything about his approach reflects his understanding that he is to be a witness. Not a slick lawyer. He is to be a witness. Now, there are some critical scholars that will criticize Stephen. Say, what a, what a terrible response. He got stoned because he gave such a terrible response. But no, they're missing the point. See, Stephen goes over the history to point them to Jesus Christ. So in a nutshell, his sermon is, I'm not demeaning the law. I'm not demeaning Moses. You are. And the first thing that he kind of emphasizes in, this, in verses 1 through 8 that we see with him retelling the history of Israel is that God calls a people. God calls the people. You know what jumps out at me when I read this? Stephen knows his Bible. He knows Scripture. Let, he knows Scripture. Let me say this. You, you never know when you're going to need to know your Bible. There's no indication at all that Stephen was given advance warning that this moment was coming. He, there's no indication of that. He knew the Scriptures, and as a result, when the time came for him to speak, he was prepared and he was ready. This is what we want at New Heights Church. We are a part of an incredible denomination that's experiencing phenomenal growth. But there are some things that worry me. We're losing our kids. We're losing our children. 
In fact, statistics are saying that a lot of the church, after they're 18 and they go off to college, they're walking away from their faith. That is not okay with me. It's not okay. So what are we doing wrong in the church that we're losing so many people as soon as their faith gets challenged? Now, Peter says something real similar to to Luke or to Stephen here, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Always be prepared to explain who Jesus is and what he's done. My prayer, and I know this takes a lot of energy, this is, this is time consuming, but what we're gonna do is get really strategic with our young people at this church. Because my prayer as the pastor, as the shepherd of this church, that anybody who's born, and they're, they're born in this church, and they spend all 18 years in this church, would be able to leave this church and know their scriptures very well. That they would be able to be like Stephen, and when the opportunity comes, they would know their Bible and be able to stand up and give a reason for their hope. You never know when the time will come. So you prepare that you're, you're ready all the time. Stephen's ready, and when the moment comes, he respectfully, calling them brothers and fathers, he's about to walk them through the Old Testament, and here it is. He's leading everything and everyone to the person and the work of Jesus. You have to remember that this audience would have known these biblical stories. They would have studied them as kids, but their problem was they had missed Jesus. Now, I want to be really transparent today with you. This is for all of us who have grown up in the church. We can know the Bible, but if we don't know Jesus, we don't really know the Bible. You can know the Bible, but if you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Bible. Jesus himself said that he came to fulfill all Scripture. He said that the Scripture was about him. John chapter. Chapter 5, verse 38 through 39, it says, And you do not have this word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that they bear witness about me. Jesus himself taught a Bible study after he rose from the death, too, in fact, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, showing how the, old, the entire Old Testament was about Jesus. The entire Bible is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And they knew the Bible, but they didn't know the Bible because they didn't know Jesus. Does that make sense? The whole Bible is about Jesus. So what Stephen is doing is he's taking the Bible that they know, the scriptures that they know, and he's leading them to the Jesus that they don't know. He goes all the way back to Genesis, and he goes deep. He's unpacking Genesis Right here in this passage, Stephen is doing a Bible lesson in front of some of the world's greatest Bible scholars. <laughs> He's telling them this, look, I don't think you understand what you guys teach. Ouch. He's a sour patch kid. First he's sweet, and then he's sour. <laughs> Just kidding. But he, he's, he's kind and he's gracious. He's servant-like that he wins the hearts of uh, antagonist priests. And yet his rebuke is so stinging it makes another group of religious leaders want to murder him. Stephen is speaking with grace and truth. And I want you to know that this is the Christian formula, okay? The Christian formula is that you speak with grace and truth. And the world most hates you when you speak with both. Truth without grace is fundamentalism, and it's easy to write off. Grace without truth is um, sentimentality, or uh, no, grace without truth is just, it has no power. 
You understand? You, our, our job as a Christian is to speak with grace and truth. That's the Christian formula. And I, like I said, the world most hates you when you speak with both. So if you speak with grace and truth, the world's going to hate you no matter how much grace you have. Now as we look at Stephen's sermon here, and you remember what I said last week, that my hope is that you would ask yourself, do I really want to be like Jesus? Do I really want to be like Jesus? Because you can go to church and not want to be like Jesus. Pastor Kyle Eidelman, who pastors a church in Lowville, Kentucky, before he wrote his book, uh, Not a Fan, tells a story about him getting a, uh, or his admin getting an email about a person that's leaving the church. And I'm leaving the church because I don't like Pastor Kyle's preaching. And so the admin gives this to Pastor Kyle. Um, you got to love admins. Amen, right? You got to love those emails. First thing Monday morning, you get an email that says, I'm leaving the church because I don't like the pastor's preaching. And so Pastor Kyle calls the person and he, he says, uh, hey, this is Pastor Kyle. It si- goes silent on the phone. You know, I don't think he was expecting Pastor Kyle to call him. And he just said, I, I just, for my own, uh, you know, for, for me to get better, can you maybe clarify what you mean by you? Because it says here that you're leaving the church because you don't like my preaching. What is it about my preaching that you don't like? And he said, listen, Pastor Kyle, stop interfering with my life. I feel like every time I come to church on Sunday, you interfere with my life. And I don't like that. I don't mind coming to church. I don't mind putting money in the bucket, but don't interfere with my life. Well, Pastor Kyle preaches the Bible. So, and sometimes the Bible does that, right? It interferes with our life. So, Standing for, for God's word, we, we, we can preach the truth and we're going to be disliked, it, but we need to preach the truth with grace. And I, I'm telling you, here's the thing, you're going to be disliked no matter what, most, most of the time. So are you looking for the world's affirmation? Is that what you're doing? If, if you're going to be a fo- if you're going to follow Jesus, you're not going to get the, the affirmation from the world. You won't. They're going to call you arrogant. They're going to call you hateful. They're going to call you bigoted. And you should always examine your heart to see if any of those things are true. But you're also going to love them and return good for evil and serve them and refuse to be bitter at them and ask God for their forgiveness. And here's the truth. Some of them, like Saul, will see something different about your testimony and how you respond to persecution, and they're going to surrender to Jesus. But the rest are going to keep throwing stones your way. And you know what? Stones are painful, They are, but Stephen speaks truth here. goes back to the book of Genesis, and he says this. The faith that God called Abraham to, he still calls us to today. God says, Abraham, you've got to be willing to leave your father, leave your land, leave everything, and you got to come and follow me. For all of us, the path to something greater goes through the valley of surrender, sacrifice, and service. Let me say that one more time. For all of us here, the path to something greater goes through the valley of surrender, sacrifice, and service. This is what Jesus asks of people. If you're willing to call yourself my disciple, you gotta be willing to leave your family, leave your friends, and if necessary, leave, leave whatever it is that's gonna stop you from coming and following me. You gotta remember, this sermon is way more than an abstract history lesson. This chapter is an exercise in biblical theology. Stephen's retelling Israel's history in order to make a very specific point about how that history anticipated the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
He's also letting his opponents know that their response, it's nothing new. <laughs> it's nothing new. Stephen's really focusing on the themes here, especially the temple and the law. He's going to go ahead and show how each one of these fulfilled by Jesus with this, this whole new covenant. And it, this isn't something new that people are getting all worked up about it. They're getting upset. Let me tell you something, people. When we say yes to Jesus and when we are when we are followers and not just fans, when we are committed to Jesus Christ, it's going to bring troubles our way. I don't give altar calls where I, where I tell people, come on up, Jesus is gonna make your life way easier. No, the truth is, it's probably gonna be harder to be a follower of Jesus. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Look at some of the claims. I keep telling the young adults this. You look, I don't care what you think of Jesus. You gotta look at what he said in the New Testament. Look at the claims that Jesus made about himself and you gotta really think, are you willing to not follow him? He doesn't want fans, he wants followers. And so when you say yes to Jesus, you can expect hardship to come, but this is the call. Jesus is calling people still. God is calling people still. You're sitting here in this pew and you're, it's not a pew, in this bucket seat. And I know they're uncomfortable sometimes. I gotta get my preaching shorter. I know, I get it. God is calling you to a better life. He, he's, he's got life for you and it goes way beyond what you could ever think or imagine. But you have to have, you have, to have a biblical perspective. You gotta understand to follow him, he's a jealous God. He doesn't want other things taking his place. You say yes to Jesus, he's gotta sit in that priority seat. He's got to take first priority in your life. He wants you, all of you. He's still calling people. Number two, God protects his people. We see this in verses 9 through 16. Stephen says next, you don't stand alone whenever you're feeling over your head and isolated because God is also big enough that he can protect you in the midst of your circumstances. So isn't this interesting? Stephen talks about uh, God God calling people, calling the Israelites, calling Moses for a specific task. And, and we're looking and we know the hardships that follow with that. And then he jumps into this, this thought that God protects his people. And he uses Joseph from the book of Genesis as an example. Stephen reminded everybody that Joseph had 11 brothers, one sister. Joseph's brothers became jealous. They hated Joseph, so they threw him in a pit. And then they sold him into slavery. When Joseph is in the pit, he feels isolated. When he's in slavery in Egypt, he's isolated. He's accused of something that he didn't do wrong. And he lands himself in jail, a totally innocent man. I was that one kid who absolutely hated this story when I was little. I remember the old flannel boards when they would put the characters up on the flannel board and they would be teaching the story of Joseph. It was unfair. That was just the way my mind worked. This is so not fair. Why does Joseph have to go through this? Joseph never did anything wrong. Maybe he was a little arrogant in the beginning, but he didn't deserve this stuff. He's accused of something he didn't do. He, now he's in jail, he's totally innocent. And Stephen's probably speaking to himself at this point. Sometimes us preachers, we do that. When we're preaching, the truth is hitting us too. <laughs> Even when he was in that jail, Joseph wasn't alone. He wasn't by himself because God's big enough to protect his people. Even when he was in that jail, God was with Joseph in ways that Joseph probably didn't understand and certainly his brothers wouldn't have understood. I think I need to be reminded of that this week. I think you need to be reminded of that this week. God is bigger than your circumstances. Certainly he's big enough to protect you from the trouble when it comes. God is bigger than our circumstances. 
The promises of God often lose their power in our lives because God himself has become small in our eyes. We may be able to recite God's promises as quick as we can recite the stats of our favorite athlete. But in our hearts, God's no longer the king who conquers armies and cuts a valley in the sea. He's no longer the shepherd who seeks his sheep and keeps them safe behind his staff. He's no longer the Lord who walks on waves and calls the dead back from the grave. Slowly, subtly, we have forgotten God's power, God's wisdom, and God's tenderness. When the promises of God seem powerless to quiet our fears or to soothe our grief or to lift our worries or to motivate us to obedience, we need to do more than simply hear his promises again. We need to behold the God who gives them. Who is the God who gives us these promises? He's the God of might, the God who created the world by his word. He's the God of wisdom who makes a way in the wilderness. He's the God of tenderness who carries his children home. And he's bigger than all of our problems. And so as Stephen is preaching this, I have no doubt in my mind that Stephen's reminding himself, I know the outcome. He's no, he's no idiot. He's no dummy. He knows what the outcome's probably going to be. But he knows and he's reminding himself God is bigger than our circumstances or our problems. He knows who wins in the end. Man, when we see God for who he really is, the God who is big enough to handle our questions, doubts and fears, who is worthy of our worship, it will change everything about our lives. Do you understand that? I've told you the story about my grandpa so many different times, but my grandfather during World War II was put in a concentration camp, and he lived in that concentration camp for an entire year. And there's two stories that I've always heard growing up because my grandpa and my great-grandpa were separated from my great-grandma and my great-aunts. So they separated the boys and the girls, and, and Grandpa Harold went with uh, his dad into another camp, and they experienced something very different from what my great-grandma and her girls experienced, my great-aunts. My great-grandma and great-aunts experienced God's protection uh, and, and literally never had anything bad happen to them in the camp. And there were times where people were intending to do bad things and God protected them in miraculous ways. My grandpa did not experience that. That was not his story. Horrible things happened to my grandpa in that camp that should never happen to any human being. And he struggled with this. And all my life, my dad always told me, don't talk to grandpa about his time in the camp. Whatever you do, whenever we were driving to uh, visit grandma and grandpa, we'd get that, that warning. Don't, don't talk to him about that time. Don't, don't bring up questions. Don't ask him anything. Don't talk to him about that time. Well, sometimes kids don't do what mom and dad tell them to do, right? And I remember when I was like 12 in youth group, excited for Jesus, uh, real excited. And then a year later at 13 years old, my dad got diagnosed with a brain tumor and I did what most 13 year olds do. I got mad at God. How can God allow this? And I remember we were going to visit my grandma and grandpa and dad said the same thing. He always would say, don't talk to grandpa about the camp. So we go in, in there and I remember we went in there and grandpa started singing a hymn. Grandma and grandpa loved hymns. They loved those old hymns. Grandpa would say, there's more theology in those hymns than most church services I go to today. Oh, grandpa, miss him. He, he started singing this hymn. A lot of you probably know it. Uh, Great is thy faithfulness. And he's singing this hymn and he is getting into this hymn. And as a 13-year-old boy, I'm getting more and more upset because at this point, at 13, I don't feel like God is faithful. 
My dad's just been diagnosed with a brain tumor. We don't have a house to live in. We were on our way. We're in between jobs. My parents were going on to the mission field. And, and now he's sick with a brain tumor. We don't know how we're going to pay for school the next year. We I'm not singing how great his faithfulness is right now. That's not what I'm going to do. And I don't care what my dad has told me over and over and over again in my life. I'm going to ask Grandpa, how in the world can you sing how good God is and how faithful he is when you live the life you lived? And I know I've, and, I, and so I cornered Grandpa in the room when Dad wasn't around because I didn't want Dad to get on my case. And I said that to Grandpa. I said, how can you, of all people, sing how good God is and how faithful God is when I know your story, Grandpa? I know you've never talked to me about it, but I know what happened to you. I know the horrible things that happened to you because God allowed them to happen. So how can you say that God is so faithful? And I'll never forget my grandpa's response. He said, the more pain I've experienced in my life, son, the more bad things that happen, the more I, I can come to the realization and truth that God is bigger than all of it. You have a very small view of God. The God you serve, Justin, is really small. The God I serve is big, and he was with me, and he walked with me through some of the most difficult valleys and difficult times. But God is gonna use all of that and has used all of that in my own life to bring him glory. My God is a big God. What God do you serve, Justin? Well, on our ride home, it was a long ride. Actually, it was a six-hour drive back home. I said, Dad, why didn't you tell me you don't want me to ask Grandpa because he's going to school me in a theology lesson? I thought you didn't want me to ask Grandpa because he, he would get emotional. And of course, I got in trouble because that was what Dad thought. But this leads to my next point. See, my grandpa saw God for who he really was, the God who's big enough to handle all of his questions, his doubts, his fears. He was worthy of my grandpa's worship, and it changed everything about my grandpa's life. Everything. And this brings me to the third point here, which Stephen is pushing here in verses 17 through 36, that God uses pain. This is what my grandpa said. God uses pain. Look at what Stephen says next. Sometimes God doesn't rescue you from the trouble, sometimes he rescues you through trouble. Sometimes he goes with you in the midst of that difficulty, but God is still with you. I remember in, in with Liz and I in 20, I think it was 2010, we had just been approved as Assemblies of God World Missionaries. And we're going, we tried to go to Pakistan. We got denied to go to Pakistan because Liz just gave birth to Ali. Ali wasn't even a year old and they didn't feel that was going to be a good fit. So they said yes to India. We had to go through all this training and it was really scary because they don't tell you what you're going to do, the security training, and you get held. You, you, it's horrible. I, I shouldn't tell because I'm not supposed to talk about it in case some of you guys go be a missionary one day. But we learn about all the horrible, terrible things that could happen to us in some of these countries and what we're supposed to do about it. And I, being young and, and foolish and naive, wanted to impress the instructor. And so I said something like, God's, God's will is the safest place. I think I even quoted Corey Ten Boom. And, and I said, God's will is the safest place. Of course, uh, Corey... Corey Tenboom meant something completely different than what I was making it. But I said, there's no better place to be or safer place to be than in God's will. And I kind of smiled at my wife, you know, like, aren't you, aren't you lucky to have such a husband like me, you know? I thought, yeah, this is really good. And, you know, my, the instructor looks at me and says, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So humiliated. I, I said, excuse me? He goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He said, God's will may be the best place for you to be, 
but it can be one of the most dangerous places for you to be. Don't you think that just because you said yes to God and you're gonna go serve God in one of the hardest countries, that pain may not come your way. He said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Liz writes on her little notepad, stop talking in class. (laughs) Man. Now, think about this. The Apostle Paul, who's listening to Stephen's preaching right now, he's known as Saul, he's listening to this sermon because he's about to okay the stoning. He's about to hold the robes for all those that are going to participate. Remember, he, in his life, experienced some difficulties. And I always wonder if he went back to this sermon he went back to these truths that Stephen, or Stephen was preaching. Look in 2 Corinthians 7.15. Look at what Paul says. It says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fighting without and fear within. Now the New King James translation of this verse uses the painfully descriptive phrase, hard-pressed, to describe Paul's trials. Hard-pressed. We were hard-pressed on every side The origin of this phrase comes from the practice of squeezing a fruit or a vegetable, grapes, olives, to to get the juice, right? I mean, you're just, have you ever made orange juice? You got that little tool you can buy at Walmart and you just, you put it on and you just, you you press it down and you squeeze it. That's what Paul's saying here. And some days, weeks, months, seasons, years, I feel hard pressed. There have been times in my life that I have felt hard pressed. Like life has me between a mortar mortar and, and, and it's just, pounding me into fine dust. feel like that sometimes. Do you feel like, can you relate? There are times in my life that I feel like this. And I'll sweat and I groan, I weep and rage and I can't find any kind of relief. The intense pressure, it doesn't stop. I plead for rescue, yet the vice of life circumstances squeezes tighter and tighter until I think I might scream. And sometimes I do. Can you relate? You've been there? Now, I need you to see this today. For those of you who are experiencing pain and suffering, when you experience a season of suffering, and all Christians do at some point in their lives, it's important to learn any lessons God's trying to teach you in the midst of your pain. Now, listen to me very carefully. I want to be very clear because I don't want you to misunderstand this. Not every season of suffering is identical. Okay? Not every season of suffering is identical. Some suffering we bring on ourselves. Some falls our way because of the sin of other people. I have met so many people. I'm not a very good counselor. I'm not. I'm going to admit that. If you're looking for counseling, do not come to Pastor Justin. I just don't have the patience for it. I, I wanna, there are so many times where, not at this church, in past ministry experiences, where I want to just beat somebody over the head and say, you are miserable because you are sinning. Stop sinning and your life is going to get better. It's just never that easy, right? I, 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 my mom is a Christian psychologist and she, she always tells me, don't counsel, you're going to do more harm than good. <laughs> I love Christian counselors. Can I say that? There is a calling and anointing and even in my, in my notes today, as I talk about pain, I want you guys to realize if you are experiencing depression and anxiety, Go get help. Go get help. There's help out there. We've got amazing Christian counselors that can help you. And I've put in our, I've put in our notes today some links that you can go to. I've given a Christian counseling center that you can go to. I am all for Christian counseling. Yeah. My life was saved through Christian counseling. So I, I am all about it. I just don't have that gift. So if you're a Christian counselor, God bless you. 
praying for you and that your patience will just grow and get stronger and stronger. But when you experience a season of suffering, and like I said, every Christian does, you need to get to a point. There's a lesson to be learned, no matter how the season of suffering came your way. Like I said, some suffering we bring on ourselves. It's, it's sin that we do in our lives that we're not really willing to repent of, we're not willing to change, and it's gonna bring damage to our life. Some falls our way because of the sin of others. You know what one of the hardest things as a pastor to do is to, to help, I mean, it's one of the most beneficial, but it's so hard because you just ask yourself, why, why, God? There's so many kids that have been innocent, that have been abused in this life, that have experienced horrible, unjust things at the hands of others, and because of that, so much stuff has come their way that should have never come their way. So sometimes we suffer not because of anything we've done, but the sin of other people. And then there are gonna be times where trials come our way specifically because we are believers, okay? And, and here's the danger, sometimes Christians do this, to put all of these experiences into one bucket, it's so dangerous. And it's really stupid, okay? It can be detrimental to those who are hurting. All of the experiences, we can't just throw into one bucket and have a one, one and all answer, okay? So the reason you found yourself in a season of suffering, it may vary, it's gonna be different, but one thing's always true. If you're hurting, that's an opportunity to lean into God. Lean into God. It's an opportunity to learn something from God that you might never have known otherwise. Because here it is, hard times reveal God's greatest power. I'm gonna say it again. Hard times reveal God's greatest power. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3, 26 through 28. He says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence and when it, when it is laid on him. It is good. It's good that we should bear our suffering and wait on the Lord. Why? Because God often does his best work in us when we suffer, even if we don't know why we suffer. God's doing something big. God's working in our lives. Sometimes in our suffering, God's trying to take, sometimes he's trying to take out some idol from our lives. I've been there in my own life. I can relate to that, right? Psalms 119.71 says, My suffering was good for me because it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. Now, I will tell you one thing. When my dad, of course, I was 13, when I, so I was very immature in my faith. But one thing that my dad's battle with, nine, a nine-year battle with cancer did for me is it made me go back to his word and rely on his word and only his word. Because before that, I could rely on my family. Whenever I was depressed, whenever I was discouraged, I can go to my dad. And when I was a, a child, I struggled with depression. I struggled with anxiety, struggled with all of that stuff. And my dad was my go-to guy because my dad could just, he would always have the saying, don't sweat the small stuff. My dad was the only one who could get me to kind of calm down. In fact, my parents were called numerous times from the school to come pick me up because I struggled with anxiety that much. And, and they would have to come pick me up. And it came to the point where my dad would be the guy that picked me up and we had a routine, we had a thing that we would do and I would calm down and be able to go back and function. What am I gonna do now when my dad's sick and I can't go to him? Oh, I had to go to God's word. Now we do this as adults sometimes too. We experience a tragedy and what's the first thing we do? It's not go to God, it's not rely on God. We'll call family, we'll call friends, we'll do whatever we have to. God's in the back burner, we don't even go to him because we don't rely on him. Psalms 19 says, my suffering was good for me because it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. God sometimes uses suffering, he'll get our attention, 
And when this happens, we usually know exactly whatever that idol is. And like I said, it could differ in everybody's life. But the Holy Spirit lets us know what he's doing if we're at least willing to be, to listen. Sometimes our suffering is an opportunity for God to teach us humility. And I often think of, uh, you know, the, there's this, it's obscure, but it's an Old Testament story of David and uh, uh, Shimei. I don't know how to say his name. I've, forgive me if you're a Hebrew expert, but David and, and Shimei. And King David was on the run, and this guy starts following him on the road, and he's shouting, and he's spitting at him, and he's pelting him with stones. And one of David's men is like, man, let me go take care of this guy. Let me just, I'll, I'll fix this problem really quick. And David says, no, even though I don't deserve this, I think God told, me, told him to do it to humble me and teach me how to trust in him. It's, one of, it's a powerful Old Testament story. People read right through it all the time. But what David said was real powerful. No, 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 don't touch this guy. Let him do it. I think God's behind it. I think God is trying to teach me something. I think God wants me to trust him. Jeremiah said that, that it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Sometimes God uses times of suffering to prepare us for ministry. In fact, the Bible describes times in, in, in life where people are called and then they go through this time of waiting. And I think that in many ways that's a normal pattern. God called Moses to deliver the children of Israel, but then he gets sent to the desert for 40 years. Paul gets called to... Uh, Paul is called to be Jesus' apostle to the Gentiles in Acts 9, but it's not, he's not commissioned as a missionary until what scholars say is a minimum of 17 years later in Acts chapter 13. David was taken out of the pasture as a shepherd, anointed to be king, but instead of going back to the, to the palace to try on ro- royal robes, he went right back to the pasture for about seven years, where we know now that God did some of the best work in David, where David learned the courage to face the lion and the bear, and he probably even wrote Psalms 23. Jeremiah said, it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Sometimes through pain, God's giving us the ability to relate to other people in ways we couldn't relate before. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite, favorite preachers of all time. If you have not read some of Charles Spurgeon's sermons, you are missing out. Go read some of his sermons. Preacher from the 19th century. Again, has to be one of my all-time favorites. He once told his congregation he was confident he'd spent more days in depression than any of them, the preacher. And here's exactly what he said. I love this quote. He said, I would gladly go into the depths of depression a hundred times in order to learn how to cheer a downcast spirit that I might better know how to speak a word in season to the weary. Wow. Wow. Maybe this is you. Maybe God's allowed you to walk through some really crummy times. You've experienced pain that nobody should have to experience, but through it you can identify with and minister to somebody else. Maybe you're going through something that you're going to be able to identify with someone else that I can't because I've never experienced pain like that. Maybe you were betrayed by a spouse. Maybe you were abused by someone who should have been protecting you. Maybe you had to bury a child. Maybe you had to walk through tragedy and pain of abortion. Maybe you've dealt with sickness or chronic pain. Maybe you've been misrepresented. I want you to know, God didn't want that pain for you, but you've seen how he has used you as you've ministered to people in situations. God wants to take those circumstances and use it for his glory. Jeremiah said that it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You see, sometimes the good lesson God wants to teach is not even in you. Any of you been in church long enough that you remember testimony night? You guys remember that growing up? And that was, 
I still am trying to figure out if that was the night that pastors didn't have their sermon prepared or if that was a Holy Spirit-led thing. But I used to get so touched by testimony night, hearing the testimonies of what God was doing in people's life. Pastor J.D. Greer, a pastor of North Carolina, shared this article, and I think it's powerful. Listen, he talks about the cardboard testimonies. So what a lot of churches are doing now, they call it the cardboard testimony night. It's not the same testimony night that we know growing up, or at least I know growing up, but it's the cardboard testimonies. And I guess this is something churches are doing now. It's made quite an impact on people. Maybe we need to do it here at New Heights Church sometime, but because we have some really powerful testimonies happening in this community right now, uh, and it's, we need to hear about them. But here it is. It's incredibly simple, and it's very powerful. People walk across the stage during a worship song, and on one side of the cardboard sign is a one-sentence description of their life before Christ. Then they flip over the sign, and there's a description of their life after Christ. J.D. Greer wrote that the best one he's ever seen was a middle-aged woman whose sign read, I was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. Then the man next to her held up his sign that read, I was the doctor who diagnosed her and I was atheist. When he flipped his sign over, it read, through her joy in the midst of suffering, I came to know Christ. Then the woman flipped her sign over and it said, worth it worth it. There is coming a day when we all flip over our cards and say, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord because even when we couldn't see it or understand it, he was doing his greatest work in and through us. Stephen is preaching a truth that is very hard for us to accept. Sometimes God doesn't rescue you from trouble. Sometimes he rescues you through trouble. Sometimes he goes with you in the midst of that difficulty. And difficult times does not mean that God is not with you. Listen to me, church. If you are going through a difficult time right now, it does not mean that God is not with you. God is with you. He is near. He's with you. He's walking right beside you. Sometimes he goes with you in the midst of that difficulty. And difficulty, like I said, it doesn't mean that he's not with you. He's big enough to use our painful experiences and turn it into something amazing. Do you look at pain that way? Do you look at the circumstances in life that cause us pain and hardship? Do you look at them that way? Remember, Stephen talks about Joseph in prison. His family's living large, and pretty soon Joseph's... Joseph's living this great life and, his, and then his family's in trouble and even in the midst of all these circumstances, God has his hand on all of it and he's orchestrating his plan. He's ready to use the pain to do something amazing. I wanna, I wanna close with this. I didn't get to everything, but I have next week. <laughs> I wanna close with this. When my dad got sick, he was 41 years old, 41 years old. That's a year older than I am. At that point, he had earned his doctorate, was teaching at Northwest University, was being used by national headquarters when it came to legal issues for the church. He was being asked to do workshops at general council, not just district council. District council is when everybody from the state comes together. General council, which we're about to experience in Columbus, Ohio, here next month or next week, two weeks, I don't know, is when all the ministers from the Assemblies of God come together. I was proud of my dad because he was that guy doing workshops at general council for all of the pastors in the 50 states. 
was proud of him. I remember when he was an attorney, I was proud of him to watch him uh, on TV do press conferences. Proud of my dad. That's back in the day where we did VHS tapes. His gift was his ability to communicate. He was one of the best preachers I had ever heard. And the first thing that brain tumor did was take away his ability to speak. It's the first thing it did. Took away his ability, couldn't communicate. All of a sudden, he's not getting invitations anymore to general counsel, district counsel. He can't preach, he can't teach, he can't do any of that stuff anymore. And I watched my dad for nine years suffer. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. In fact, he got a job at a place called Resource Development Ministries in Springfield, Missouri, where they had him put binding on books. And I've told that story before. Here's, here's what's amazing about my dad, though. At his funeral, we held his funeral at Spokane First Assembly of God. It's his home church in Spokane, Washington, and the place was packed. We had to, we had to have standing room. People, we had to put TVs out into the, the lobby of the church so that they could watch. I was so blown away by how many people came, and I was fully expecting at that point most of the testimonies, most of the people to get up and talk about my dad during the time he had his gift about the time he was a great speaker, about the time that he stood and did workshops in front of people, about the time he was pastoring and doing all of that. And I was blown away because that wasn't the case. Most of the people that got up and said their lives were touched and changed by Pastor Jim Hansen was during the nine years he battled with the brain tumor. He couldn't preach, he couldn't teach, but he blessed their lives. He somehow used all of those experiences that he was going through, the pain, and he turned it and used it for good. And I was blown away by that that. Blown away by it. Here's the thing, people. God may be allowing pain in your life, but he has a bigger plan and a bigger purpose. So here's what I want to do tonight, or today. Today. I didn't go all night. (laughs) Here's what I want to do today. Just like every Sunday, we're going to close with prayer. When I, when I finish praying, you are free to leave if you have to go. Our worship team's going to stay. Our altars are open, and I want you to notice something. I did something this week. I took a row out took one row out, 50 chairs I removed. And no, it's not because we haven't filled them yet. Don't go there. It's because I want our altar. I want adequate space because this is going to be a part of our culture. It's going to be a part of our DNA. Every Sunday, we're going to open the altar up and we're going to allow people to come forward and pray. The worship team is going to continue to play. If you've got to go, you got to go. There's, there's no pressure to stay. But if you can stay and you want to stay, the altars are open. I want you to know one thing about my dad in those nine years of him battling that brain tumor. He wasn't pastor anymore, so we attended his home church. We attended that church for for that time where he was, and he never missed a chance to come to the altar. And that was one of the testimonies a pastor gave about him, the pastor of Spokane First, as he said, in all the years that I gave altar calls or anybody who wanted to come pray at the altar, Jim never missed an opportunity to come pray. There's something about when we step out of our seat, out of our comfort zone, and we step up, it's like this, we're declaring something to God. We're making this declaration that we want God to move in our lives. Because there's nothing special about the altar that's more special about where you are right now. God can touch you in your seat. I think it's, a, it's more with us. It's just something that happens when we stand up We don't care who's watching. We don't care who's saying. We're making this declaration. I need 
God in my life. I need intervention. So that's what we're gonna do. And you don't just need intervention because of sin in your life or because you need intervention because you just need joy, you need peace, you need strength, you need the perspective that Stephen has. You've got a sermon you've got to preach. You know you've got to preach it. You've got to stand up and preach it. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna close in prayer. You're free to go if you have to. Our altars are gonna be open. God, we love you so much. We love your word because your word brings perspective. Things get so blurry in this life. And then when when we read your word, you speak directly into our life. You speak directly into our situations. You're doing it right now with people who are going through difficult times. You are speaking directly into their circumstance, in their situation, and you are saying, I am with you. You're not alone. I've called you, and I'm with you, and I'm going to use the pain. I'm gonna use it. There's purpose to the pain. God, I pray right now we would be a bunch of Stevens and we would respond to the Holy Spirit, respond to the call and the path that you have for our own life. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.